Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. This is the show where we explore the world of neurodiversity or the natural variation of human brains and neurodiversity affirming practices with the understanding of lived and learned experiences. So I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and in today's episode, we have a very special guest, Bria Rosas, school psychologist of eight plus years, and you can find her on Instagram as ndaffirming underscore sp. So she is a neurodivergent, allistic, which means not autistic, school psychologist who is committed to implementing and spreading the word about neurodiversity affirming practices. So welcome, Bria. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here and reaching out. And you are honestly, I have to say the first fellow affirming in the name account. And I'm so happy. Like I want to collect everybody <laughs> like Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so I see that you joined Instagram last March, which is like perfect mm -hmm. because right around neurodiversity celebration week, but mm -hmm. what made you make your account? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I guess we have to go like all the way back, right? What led yeah. me to being neurodiversity affirming? So um, I'll kind of go back to September 2021. I um, was doing a training with, you know, some of my special education um, educators, you know, SLP, OT, special ed teacher. And we were doing this, this training um, that we didn't know it was going to be neurodiversity affirming. It was like something about like working with autistic kids. And oh. we're like, okay, cool. This, yeah, this, my SLP family, she's like, this looks cool. That's a good way to sneak it in though. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, at the time, none of us knew really much about it. And um, so we were, it was funny. We were, all, you know, all listening to it together. And um, just the tension in the room was a lot. Because I think we're all processing like, oh, shoot, we've really been doing things wrong for a long time. And like, how do we like everyone's kind of having their own individual process through that. So that was kind of, I would say, like the formal start of like introduction to neurodiversity affirming practices. Um, and so from there, I just started joining Facebook groups, following Instagram pages, like trying to get more information about this. Um because it really spoke to me. And I was like, wow, I've been doing all this behaviorism stuff for years. I I didn't know it was wrong. That's mm -hmm. what I was trained to do. So, you know, those are evidence-based best practices. And I was like, oh, this is a totally different way of looking at things. So, um, so I just started like consuming as much as I could. And um, I really found like a gap in neurodiversity affirming practices for educators. So yes. then in it's really, it's very different working in private practice than working in education to be neurodiversity affirming because in education, there's so much bureaucracy, there's many laws, it's very political. So um, I was like, oh man, I don't really feel like anyone's talking about my specific challenges with neurodiversity affirming practices. So um, I started a Facebook group. So I started a Facebook group in um, April, 2022 for educators to kind of come together, share, you know, their struggles, what they're going through, share resources. Um, and kind and of that's still that, up. Can like people still join still today? Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my oh. gosh, we just got like 50 followers joiners, you know, a couple of days ago. So Yay! yes, that's the other thing. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you that. But yes, we also have that on Facebook. 
um, and it's kind of a long name, neurodiversity affirming educators and consulting practitioners. It's a long one, but oh, I it's um, that one. No, I'm not yeah, an educator, but I'm like, I want all the information. Consulting, though, <laughs> we also want it for people who work, you know, adjacent to the school district or um or with it in some way. So that's great. Um, but yeah, so I oh, I started that Facebook group with uh, you know a couple other people kind of helped me get that off the ground, and then through that, I was like, man. People are asking, the educators in the group are asking for so many resources. I need a dedicated page. Like I need yeah. a dedicated space for people because they I love want that Instagram is that for everybody. <laughs> it is. It is. And I was like, man, this is just so hard to get information out in a Facebook group where I'm like trying to comment on everybody's stuff. And I was like, you know what? People want this. Educators want this. I'm going to just start an Instagram page, you know, it's hard, I think, to start something like that, because I don't feel like an expert. I just know maybe a little bit more than some other people. So, um, yeah, that's well, kind of the question long story for you, because mm -hmm. I wonder if your training, did your training mention anything about social cognitive learning theory? Yes. So interesting yes. point. I don't know if you know, my space or anybody thought about this, but the funny thing is, you know, social media is that. Yeah. Like yeah. literally when we watch influencers, yeah. they're modeling. And that's why we are so influenced to either like listen, practice or buy mm -hmm. stuff. And for me, I'm like, I wonder, like, I know Instagram probably is the most affirming platform because we could do better with alternative text, you know, captions. I feel right. like they are getting better with threads. But when I step back and I like, just look back, I was like, Hmm, no wonder people flock to Instagram. It's a visual yeah. aid. You know, you could do videos. You could just do audio probably if you wanted to. And mm -hmm. that's obviously why I'm doing this podcast too, because I want people mm -hmm. to listen. And I'm, I'm sure it could count as body doubling if you're just listening to our conversation and doing what you need to do and you get to learn at the same. Like, I feel like people, totally. and maybe you can comment on this, but I feel like people like, hate on multitasking but I'm like I love if I can learn if I can laugh if I can enjoy something all at the same time totally yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean I just cleaned my bathrooms listening to a podcast like made it a lot less aversive right <laughs> like it's way more interesting like so. Swiffer yeah. come on come on <laughs> yes exactly no yeah I totally totally agree but no I love your page I have to say like and I've, I've said this in, I think my first episode is that, you know, I get it. You know, we grew up with girls and, you know, catty behavior, mean girl behavior will kind of mm -hmm. say like, Ooh, somebody else has a neuroforming name. Like mm. what are they doing? Like, how are they affecting my brand? And I used to be a personal trainer and I felt that so much, even though I worked in like a women's only gym, it was very competitive and not collaborative. And I feel like I see mm -hmm. that shift within psychology, within pediology, mm -hmm. and even parenting. Like, I don't want to compete. I want to collaborate. I don't have mm -hmm. a village, so I have to find my own. And I feel like, I say it a lot, but serendipity is so real because you mentioned September 2021. Mm -hmm. That's when we started the whole school process with my daughter in pre-K. Oh. And we had no clue about how school worked because we were new parents 
And we had no clue because, I mean, we have family history, but we only called it mental illness. You know, we didn't know right. about neurodiversity. Like, right. I'm like, yeah, you know, my mom, I could say every ableist, like crazy, insane word in the book. And that's what we used to describe, but that's not affirming. And mm -hmm. so I feel like everything came together, like the stars aligned perfectly. So I want to point out how I'm grateful that you got training in your workplace, in school. And just for our listeners, I'm on the East Coast of USA. You're on the West Coast. And then mm -hmm. from online, I see personally for dyslexia stuff, I love UK. But then for mm -hmm. neurodiversity, I see Australia and New Zealand. So I'm wondering, yeah. like, is it because you're on the West Coast that you get more of this neurodiversity understanding, do you think? I don't know. Um, maybe. I'm also in L.A. I, oh, I, I truly don't know, like, what it is. You know, I'm really worky, lucky to work in an area that is very, like, progressive so there's there is a lot of embrace I would say um with like the neurodiversity affirming movement but in terms of like school it honestly was just a random training like we have a lot of flexibility during like a professional development time oh, and nice. that's just what it is so it was like okay we have this time together on Wednesday I found you know she was like I found this cool training you should we do it together yeah sure sounds good we'll use that time to watch so that's really all it was for that and then yeah, it's just kind of moved forward ever since then. But that's so like cool. That was just a chance. You happened was, to yeah. take that class and now it's kind of opened your whole world. And I know you shared with me on the forum that you've experienced anxiety. And I think that's a huge mm -hmm. topic that doesn't just hit one neurotype because mm -hmm. I've experienced anxiety, even though I was only seen as the gifted kid and expected to, you know, oh, you're so smart. You can overcome everything. And I'm like, no, I wasn't, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, cause you know, a lot of like the umbrella terms for neurodiversity, when we comes to statistics, they'll say, you know, one in five dyslexia, then we have, you know, ADHD is the majority under that. And then, you know, there's autism gifted and all, and so on and so on. But me, I'd argue that I wouldn't say all humans will experience anxiety one point in their life, but I feel like you can empathize easier mm -hmm. with the neurotype of anxiety. So mm -hmm. if you want to share some of your experience? Sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I totally agree. Like most people experience things like anxiety or depression at some point in their life. Um, I think when it's like definitely like part of your neurotype, it's a very different experience. Yes. Um, so like. And sometimes me, I can't separate it. <laughs> oh, I know. I know, which is also confusing. Like, is this a time that is, I should be anxious or am I, yeah, that happens <laughs> to me quite often. Um, but yeah, you know, really it started, I, I can remember all the way back to when I was eight. And it's interesting because at the time I, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 20. So I didn't Same know that sister. I was, yep. yeah, I didn't know that I was anxious. I knew that I talked too much. I knew that I had to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes. I went mm. to several urologists to figure out why I was always needing to go to the bathroom because I had an anxious body because I was anxious. I would have stomach aches a lot, headaches a lot. Um, so a lot of like somatic symptoms when I was younger, a lot of irritability through my teen years. My mom just thought I was a horrible teen. And then <laughs> as I kind of came out of that, um a lot of like intrusive thoughts so I was originally diagnosed and and 
panic attacks. Mm. So that's what I was originally diagnosed with when I was 20 was generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And then um, about a year, year and a half ago, I, well, it's been, yeah, about that long that I started working with my therapist and she was like, uh, I think you have OCD. <laughs> I was like, ah. oh, <laughs> I never thought of that. And so but she didn't mention ADHD at all because, and no. I'll, I'll reference yeah. this so much in my podcast, but my favorite resource is professor Amanda Kirby out of UK. Uh-huh. And she's the one who really broke my mind because she, you know, in neuronormative world and then the medical paradigm, we think, oh, there's an exception to this. Oh, there's section. You're an outlier, but in neurodiversity mm-hmm. overlap is the rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think, you know, it's possible. I do think I have pretty good focus <laughs> and like shifting yeah. attention and those types of things. I, I don't personally see myself as having ADHD, um, but definitely like the OCD thought process, like a lot of obsessive and intrusive thoughts. So that's where it kind of hits, hits for me. No, thank um, you for saying that because I have the same issue because my mom and sister are ADHD. Mm. And I, it's hard for me to separate. Cause you know, when you, I mean, when you grow up in that household, you're going to pick up traits because you think, right. Oh, that's my siblings trait or, Oh, that's my mom's trait. You don't automatically mm-hmm. think ADHD. And I agree. Right. Like I've never had an issue focusing. Like I got invited to my daughter's old school, like a, um, a summer conference during, you know, professional development and a very sweet lady next to me said, um, oh, she got up and she started moving around. And for me, I'm just like, dyslexic thinking is like, okay, assess my area, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess she saw me noticing her. So she wrote me a little note and was like, sorry, I'm ADHD. I have to like move or do stuff. And I was like, no, you're fine. I love neurodiversity. But for mm-hmm. whatever reason, like I think, <laughs> and I think it's so the opposite of autism, right? Because people assume, oh, like kids like me, or I can stare you at your face and like, I can sit still. Oh, I'm the perfect student, but I still need accommodations and modifications just because I look like uh-huh. I'm the perfect learner. Doesn't need, I still need help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's, ADHD is very interesting and for sure there's a lot of overlap with anxiety. So, um, but yeah, in terms of just like my story, you know, definitely. Does that like help the, you? Does that help you relate to students and oh, parents, yeah. right? Yes, it does. And especially like um, connecting it to neurodiversity affirming, like it, that has actually helped me understand my own neurotype even better, even though I was mm. diagnosed. 13 years ago, I understand myself a lot better through understanding neurodiversity affirming practices and putting myself in other people's shoes is a lot easier too. Yes. So, um, yeah, I feel it's like just, empathy it's is interesting. Yes. I feel like, cause I used to be like, Oh, my boomer parents or, Oh, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? But right. now that I understand neurodiversity, I'm like, they didn't have accommodations. They didn't have mm-hmm. modifications in school. No wonder they dropped out. No Mm -hmm. wonder my mom, you know, turned out to be a nurse and her ADHD helped her thrive in chaotic environments. You know what I mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But also I have a question because I, you know, I never even got to meet 
my daughter's school psychologist, we had to pay out of pocket a thousand dollars to go to a, she was a wonderful educational psychologist up in Atlanta um, to get my kids assessed. And she's the only person, and it probably was good that she was outside the school because she told me about my children's strengths. And mm-hmm. that's, she didn't diagnose my daughter with dyslexia, but she's the only one that said, hey, her strengths are visual and spatial. And she mm-hmm. didn't go into too much detail either. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing because it helped lead me to better resources. But the weird thing about my school district is we never even met our school psychologist. She was on Mm -hmm. Zoom and not even video. Mm. It was just like a blank screen. Mm. And so she was just like this looming voice. It was like the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) And anytime we had a question, she was just like, hmm, I'll have to look that up. And I was like, what? So Mm. please tell me your school situation is way better. (laughs) Well... I like to think so. I mean, (laughs) look, like school psychologists in different areas are really short staffed and there's a huge need for them. So um, it kind of depends where you live. In Southern California, we have lots of um, universities that have school psychology programs. So we have a lot of school psychologists. Now where I'm actually from Washington State and when I was there, there's only three universities in the state that have school psychologists. So there's a Mm. shortage there, right? So when there's not enough of you to go around, it's really hard to do your job and do anything well. Um, So so tell me this, can you tell me what is something that maybe a young nerd virgin or neurotypical person could think, what would make them want to go to school to be a school psychologist today? Um, so many things, I think really just making some sort of impact, making some sort of impact with kids, with families, because the work that we do is very important and you can have a really positive impact on, on families, on kids for the rest of their life. Even if you don't see it, you know, that's in my job, I don't always get to see the follow through, you know, not a lot of people recognize their school psychologists, like they recognize teachers or something like that. But when we make plans for kids, when we consult with teachers, when we consult with families, we get to have a really positive impact on people's life, even if you don't always get to see it. So that would be my plug for becoming a school psychologist. Yay. And I have a question though, because the only reference I have is in my daughter's local public school, we, I told you, we never saw the school psychologist, but Mm -hmm. in my daughter's virtual school, um, which we left for other reasons, but mm-hmm. they actually integrated counselors more in and they had counselors mm-hmm. even doing like um, kind of like sometimes morning meeting or they would have like a special day for like a conference. Is that something mm-hmm. you'd probably say like you have you done or would you like to do in the future? Yeah, I do. So, um, you know, the main part of the role of a school psychologist is to do evaluations for special education services. Um, but I, oh, sorry, I lost the headphone here. Um, <laughs> but, but also, um, I do see kids individually or in groups for counseling. And sometimes those services are in the classroom. Sometimes I do go into like a morning meeting or Um, sometimes I do, you know, I I do a whole plethora of things at my school. So I'm really lucky in that sense that I get to use lots of different skills and lots of different parts of my training, um, to work with kids and families. But yeah, I definitely, you know, go into classrooms. Sometimes we do whole, whole class, 
lessons or things like that. So yes, it's very fun. I love it. Oh, good. And then I personally, I'm biased. I love your Instagram page, but for (laughs) anybody interested in checking your page out more, I love your series on taking an IP and because we know how existing they aren't always affirming and you kind Mm -hmm. of helping people reframe into more affirming. So can Mm -hmm. you explain more on why you wanted to do that and how you do that? Yeah, totally. So um, that was a huge thing that was actually coming up in the Facebook group that I have. And it was like, okay, I it's really easy to recognize when a goal or wording is not affirming, but mm. it's really hard to figure out what to do about it. Um, so like you can read something and be like, oh, that's definitely not affirming, but we still need a goal in this area. What do we write? Like what would be affirming? And just that lens shift is so hard. So um, that's kind of what like prompted me to do it. And I was working with um, someone actually from the Facebook group, she had asked if me and a- another um, person from the group would help her with her child's IEP. And I was like, yeah, sure, of course. So, you know, we all met on Zoom, we went through it. And I was like, this was a really actually fun project. It's really hard for your brain to switch. It's yes. a good practice for your brain to switch that that thinking. Um, but I was like, I think other people could really benefit from just like what, you know, what that makeover process would look like. And it's not perfect. Like the goal, it's very complicated because to be neurodiversity affirming means that you're looking at that child, their unique needs, their unique, you know, cognitive neurotype, their language skills, their regulation, their sensory system. And so, you know, I like to preface it with like, this isn't just a one size fits all like, oh, if you have a goal like this, you can just make this one. That's not what it's supposed to be. Um, Sorry, so it's a lifestyle. Okay yeah, <laughs> like I hope I do an okay job, like prefacing it with that. Like it really needs to be for that specific child. Um, but just kind of giving people a different lens, a different kind of um, example of what it could look like if you're trying to make something more affirming. So that's kind of where I went. You know how I kind of got started with that. And honestly, most of the goals are like, or the things that I'm writing about are things that like my old goals or goals that I've inherited or goals that, you know, I've seen kind of out there floating around. Um, so yeah, it's also very humbling to go through your old IEPs, your old goals, your old behavior plans and be like, yeah, this wasn't it. This wasn't it, but you know, this is how I can make it better in the future. So yeah. Well, I have to say like, I am guilty of literally, because we unfortunately experienced the bad side of ABA therapy and BCBAs. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my little soapbox is that I, I wish people realized that it doesn't stop at autistic students or children yeah. that really this trillion dollar industry, if they could have behavior charts in every classroom and make that a business and make that the norm, they would. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of a disservice to just, you know, tell people, well, like, oh, look for this red flag. But what really drew you to moving away from your training of behaviorism towards neurodiversity affirming? I think just recognizing the harm. And some of it, I, you know, some things are just a process. Like I had already knew some things. Like um, my youngest brother, for example, is autistic. And he is 21 now, Um, but yeah, I know. (laughs) But when he was in school, I remember him telling me, 
And I was like very surprised by this. He was in high school and he was like, I don't want to go to social group anymore. He he was meeting with the speech, the speech therapist and they were doing social group. He's like, I don't want to go anymore. And I was like, what do you mean you don't want to go anymore? Like, don't you want to learn social skills? Like, don't you want to be more typical? I was confused. Um, and that's what like, you're told. Well, like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, I thought that's what you would want to do. And like, you play games and you're, you know, practicing you know, role play and all that stuff so that you can have friends. Oh, it sounds so terrible now, but that's what I thought in my head. And um, I think that's where things like really started for me, like questioning some of the behavioral practices I had been taught, um, some of the more compliance-based things I was taught. And that's really kind of what started it. And then just from there, like realizing the harm that we were doing for kids and just like questioning my own self, like, yeah, why is that an expectation in that classroom? Yeah. Why do we want kids to be dysregulated, like get work done at the cost of being dysregulated for half the day? You know, why are we doing all these things? Just kind of questioning my own thought process, um, my own expectations, my own values. And that's kind of what led me away from it. Um, so yeah, that's how I was like, you know what? I think we could do better for kids. I think we can help them be more regulated and, you know, looking for alternatives. Like I love um, Ross Green's collaborative proactive solutions. That's, you know, I'm really lucky. My principal paid for me and two of our special ed teachers to do um, the advanced training. It was like a two day intensive. Oh, and then cool. I'm applying for a grant to do like a certification training too, which is a 24 week program. So I'm really excited for that. Um, but just finding better alternatives to, behaviorism that feels right that includes student voice um that includes you know what we really want for our kids to be you know self-advocates and things like that so yeah that's kind of what what led me Yay. away from ABA and more towards like neurodiversity affirming so have you talked to your brother recently how does he feel about you now <laughs> is he like so proud <laughs> you know <laughs> um all autistic people are very different. And my brother <laughs> is, I think, um, a very much a poster child for autistic, like what you would think of like a white autistic child. That's him. So he's very tight lipped. He doesn't really say a lot. There's not a lot of expression of <laughs> crowd, but, um, but yeah, I think he thinks it's cool. Well, yeah, yay, that's so awesome. And I'd say that because <laughs> yeah. I had a best friend in high school and her brother was younger autistic. And my husband, he has like a distant cousin in his family too. And I feel like the more that obviously, I mean, we all reproduce that, you know, it's getting closer and closer. You can't really meet somebody today that doesn't know somebody who is autistic or doesn't know about right. autism. And I think right. that's a sign of progress. I think that's yeah. so good because I mean, I mean, we have a long way to go for other neurotypes too. We all need our soapbox, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I, that's why I really say we have to thank the autistic rights activists because totally. when you help one neurotype, you're unknowingly helping all neurotypes. Totally. So thank you so much for being a guest today. I'm sorry that yeah. we're running out of time, but I just want to point everybody out to follow her on Instagram and I will go ahead, let's spell it out for everybody. So at ND affirming is A-F-F-I-R-M-I-N-G underscore S-P. But thank you, Bria, so much for your time today. Do you have any closing words or references for anybody? 
No, yeah, just follow my Instagram. I share lots of resources, not just things I create, but from other people, um, autistic voices and all sorts of things, not just about autism, about dyslexia and all different types of neurotypes. So um, yeah, definitely follow my, my Instagram for more info. Yay, and I'll have to look up because I know last year my daughter's school like celebrated like School Psychologist Day. I'm gonna have to put that in the notes and be like, you know, talk to Rhea <laughs> and say thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please remember that embracing affirming practices, it's not just about parenting or being a teacher or working in the school system or working with children. It's really about helping everyone blossom into their own authentic self. And remember, every child is unique. And, you know, a lot of what you've heard today might work best just for one child, and it may differ from one child to another. Please be willing to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about neurodiversity and individual strengths and needs. Because being a neurodiversity affirming person or making those change and shifts to neuroaffirming practices is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, comment, leave us a review, reach out, connect on social media. Until next time, keep nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. This is the Neuroaffirming Parent signing off.